Thank you, guys. Um, I have I have two pre pre intros. Um, we are uh, going to do a mini series this week and next week for Palm Sunday and Easter as we pause First Peter where we've been, and that series has been um, uh, called <clears throat> "Surprised," or excuse me, "Surprising," not "Surprised." But this series we're going to flip it. It's called "Surprise," not "Surprising." And we'll see that clearly, hopefully, today in Mark, uh, where we're going to be. But I want to give you one just in real time. Um, And this isn't um, not surprising because we know it from Scripture. This is just not surprising because isn't it like God in His kindness, goodness, and just being in charge that sometimes He weaves together things and we're like, wow. And some of you um, got um, news from Chris Trevathan about this, but I'm going to share it with everyone. So as the war has been going on in Ukraine, we have been praying weekly um, for um, the people of Ukraine, the church in Ukraine, for Jesus to be displayed radiantly through them. And uh, we have financially supported, we uh, partnered with two um, ministries there. One is called Josiah Venture, uh, and they are the, the people of that ministry that we're partnering with are in western Ukraine where a lot of the refugees are flooding. If they don't leave the country, they're there. And we've, we heard great reports. Melody Adams um, is friends with uh, one of the workers there. And then the Trevathans who are in Austria, uh, Chris and Brittany, they are ABC missionaries that we sent out a few years back to. He was the Young Life Leader here for years and years, director, uh, area director, and now he's the country developer in Austria. And as he's trying to get that going, there's lots of starts and stops, but um, Chris is great at just sharing when God is showing up and you're like, just wow. And so we've shared some of those stories as uh, Chris, when he saw what was going on in Ukraine, he said, I can't sit here and do nothing. So we went with another couple to Poland and they've been back and forth in to Ukraine as well as uh, meeting refugees at the border of Poland. Uh, the Trevathans brought in three moms and their kids in Austria. Uh, and then I think you heard this is actually two parts. Um, you may have heard this, but um, he became aware of a couple from Prosper who was over there trying to adopt a Ukrainian child right before this happened. That obviously didn't happen right away. But the orphanage where that child was, they evacuated their refugees there. They are now sheltered in Austria just north of where the Trevathans live, I believe. And that couple found out about Chris and Brittany. They're like, we love Young Life. Would you come to the orphanage and lead Young Life Club for 73 orphans? I'm getting my hair on my arm just standing up. Okay, so that's really cool. Uh, But that's not what I wanted to share with you. I mean, I wanted to share that one, but this one happened this week where Chris, uh, as he heard about some of the, the pastors and churches they're helping in Western Ukraine who take food and also evacuate refugees from eastern Ukraine, um, they've been getting shot at. And so I'm not sure how Chris came across this. Some of you may know this. They got bulletproof vests and helmets, along with another several van loads, I think, full of food and supplies. And he went into Lviv a couple of days ago, um, or the Lviv area. I'm not even exactly sure, nor should I tell you exactly where. Um, But they went and were, were... very grateful, and he um, <clears throat> wanted the, the folks to know that you guys are part of how God is providing, so that was a cool thing, but as he was sharing with this pastor, who's kind of the main 
one of the main connectors of churches to get this refugee ministry continuing and supplied and all that. Um, he found out that um, <clears throat> Chris said something about us partnering also with Josiah Venture, and then th- it turns out that that guy knows those people and work, has worked closely with them and knows the people of the church where we're working. And Chris, if you haven't seen it, I'm, I can't show you the video up here as we don't want it to be out there, but I mean, Chris was like, floored and so it's sort of that surprised and then not surprising look at God and what he does I want you to be encouraged by that Uh, I want you to know that as Brian said praise God for his provision for us financially that's both what's happening here in and through Allen Bible but also enables us to be a part of that in in a very tangible way and wow look at God just weaving together people on the ground in Ukraine I mean and and Chris is so great at he's like (laughs) Um, and he, he would want me to tell you thank you again uh, from the Trevathans for your generosity. So that's my first pre-intro. Second is now to tell you about this quick two-week series. Um, I'll, I'll probably get my words mixed up. It has been in First Peter, surprising. We're supposed to live surprising so that people are like, wait, what's the reason for the hope within you? I don't get it. And then we are supposed to be not surprised by suffering because that's par for the course if we follow Christ. Okay, so that's Surprising, not surprised. Now, we're going to flip it. Surprised, not surprising. We're going to be confronted today and next Sunday, or Good Friday and Sunday, Easter Sunday, with the way, the why, and the woe. That woe factor we just talked about with the Trevathan, the woe factor of all that God did, displaying his character fully in the person of his son on the cross all at one time that there is a way that he did so, a why, and it should elicit a wow, a woe. His death, his burial, his resurrection. His closest followers, um, the, the curious and often easily swayed crowds, and even his harshest critics or opponents, they were all surprised, even shocked, by the events of Jesus' final week. And yet it should not have been surprising at all. The scriptures forecasted it, and Jesus himself spoke plainly about what must happen. He uses that word, must happen, to him. And as we just sang, what do we do with that one that we're surprised that he's on the cross, but that he didn't come off the cross, and that he rose from the dead? What do we do with that one? And it is a scandal of grace, and I'm going to give Eric a little more backing You realize when Peter, we saw it in 1 Peter, we see it in Acts when Peter's preaching, and he says, look, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because he is a scandalon. He's going to be the one that's the cornerstone upon whom you build your life, or you will trip over it. And the word is where we get scandal from. So isn't that cool as well? Let's pray. We're going to dive in to see surprised, not surprising in the death of Jesus. Lord, we are in awe of you. We give you thanks for even Chris's report. Just, we we sang it. You you work all things together uh, for our good, for your glory, and for the display of the gospel, the display through the Trevathans and many others being the hands and feet of Jesus in Ukraine and Poland and Austria. And Lord, we get to be that here, as Brian even said and prayed that, As we leave here, Lord, may the spillover of this morning being confronted with the person and the finished work of Jesus on the cross, may it spill over into our lives as worship.
And Lord, if we are in any way in jeopardy, susceptible this morning to glaze over, to tune out, we just confess we need your help to be attentive. We need your spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to be receptive, and then to grant us spiritual courage to follow you with our whole heart. Would you do a work like that today as we open your word in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, have you ever seen someone take their last breath? I mean, you were actually there, and you saw them take their last breath? Well, I have. And it was one in which we would say, my friend taking her last breath was way too early. She was only 40. She was a radiant ambassador for Christ in her neighborhood, in her workplace, in our church, everywhere she went. That's why over a thousand people came to this non-famous person's funeral and person after person got up and spoke of her life, spoke of her humility, spoke of her willingness to serve others and think of their interests more than her own. And yet I saw that radiant one remain radiant but shrivel as cancer was taking her life. And I was actually in the room. I was privileged. The family asked me, because I was working with youth at the time, they asked me to come and hang out with their two high schoolers. At the, I spent the night at their house. And the husband who was by her side so faithfully, hour after hour after hour, he said, hey, do you think you could just sit here for a minute? I'm going to go get a sandwich. And maybe a minute after he had gone into the kitchen, I saw her go, <gasps> like that. And I ran to the kitchen, and I got my friend. He came back in. Thankfully, that was not her last breath. But then as he came in, she took about three more sort of really small, slow breaths. And then she died. And you could say, buddy, that is very morbid. And yet I can also tell you in the midst of that, tragic and just gut-wrenching for us, there was something beautiful. And at the same time, I can tell you that watching someone take their last breath, it lodges in your memory. It, it attaches to your soul. I will never forget it. But it also, in that moment and moments after, it disrobes your facades it disrobes those and it exposes just how fragile you and I are. I'm past 40. And so seeing someone take their last breath caused cause me to think, maybe causes you to think, how, how will I take my last breath? How will others respond when I do? Or will I be alone? Will there be anyone there? Will there be anyone who will even care? Will me breathing my last even be a cause for others to pause? Or will their lives just roll on? Maybe my funeral will make their outlook calendar. Maybe it won't. It's pretty sobering. And it's meant to be. In today's passage, we're going to see the way that Jesus breathed his last. And we're going to see that through the eyes of the man who was at the base of the cross, who oversaw his crucifixion and saw the way that he breathed 
his last. If you want to turn to Mark 15 with me, Mark 15, 20 through 41. Mark 15, 20 through 41. We're going to see how Jesus responded to the cross, how the Father, God the Father, responded to his crucified son, and this one man's response after seeing the way that Jesus breathed his life. Let's let, breathe his last. Let's start there with the man who was at the base of the cross, the centurion, in Mark 15, verse 39, and then we'll work backwards and go forward. Mark 15, 39. It's on me on the screen. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. It says when the centurion saw the way Jesus breathed his last, well, what did the centurion see that made him conclude certainly or truly this man was the Son of God? Well, he saw three refusals. Three refusals that Jesus made as he went to the cross as he stayed on the cross and as he died on the cross, Jesus refused three things, or he made three refusals. And so we're going to look at today, what are those three refusals so that through the eyes of centurion, we might see how Jesus breathed his last. And then at the end, we might ask and be confronted with, why did Jesus's refusals matter for you and me today? Let's look at the first refusal in verses 20 through 23. You can go to the next slide. As they're about to lead him to be crucified, we're going to see that... You can go to the slide right before it, Connor. We're going to see the first refusal is that Jesus refused to numb his pain. Verses 20 through 23, let's read there. After they had mocked him, these are the Roman soldiers, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. When they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus refuses to numb his pain. He's carrying the cross beam, uh, probably 100 pounds, uh, four soldiers and one centurion, this one that we're seeing. They would accompany each cross and criminal. Uh, they would take the longest, windiest route through the busiest streets because they wanted to humiliate the sentenced one. And they wanted to intimidate those who were just going about their normal day and all of a sudden be jolted by the gruesome procession through the streets. Well, these soldiers could do kind of anything they wanted to in terms of what they ask or force citizens to do. They, uh, Simon of Cyrene's coming by and they press him into service. We're not told that he did this willingly or voluntarily. They pressed him into service to carry Jesus' cross for him. Now, this act of carrying one's cross was not only humiliating, which was a big part of its purpose, but it was also 
to publicly identify the cross-bearer dragging through the street as guilty and condemned to die at the hands of Rome. I want you to know this, that at some point, Jesus didn't carry that cross identifying himself as guilty all the way. I think there's great irony there that Jesus, the innocent one, which Luke makes very sure we understand, Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent, and he gets it from the voice of lots of people. But it's ironic that Jesus, the innocent one, is not bearing his own cross to Golgotha. Simon does, and when they get there, then they will put Jesus on it. But you see in verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He refused to numb his pain. And by his choice of drink, we learn some things about him. He did not drink this wine mixed with myrrh because he knew that he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus refused to take this merciful narcotic, and this was known that uh, there, were, there was a group of women that I think were doing this often out of mercy and compassion would meet whoever it was, no matter how guilty they were, to provide some bit of comfort, some bit of cutting the pain. And they would offer this merciful narcotic. But Jesus refused the merciful narcotic. Why? He refused it so that he could drink fully the cup of God's wrath. It's what he agonized over in prayer with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood drops and saying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done. And what was the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath that has to be poured out on sin. Otherwise, we have no hope. So Jesus refused it so he could fully drink the cup of God's wrath in his suffering and his death. He ensured, listen to this, Jesus ensured that he would have all of his faculties, his physical and mental faculties, and so he refused to numb his pain even when his pain was undeserved. We looked at this a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 2, 21-24. You can glance there if you want. You don't have to. We're not going to go through it. We're told that Jesus gave us an example for how to suffer. How to suffer even when it's undeserved. And, and I told you there that the word example literally means underwriting. And you would take a child to teach them how to write the alphabet. And they would have the little tablet here. And you would write, you know, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, etc., and they would lay a thin layer of wax over it, and then the child knew they could trace their finger over that exact letter and learn to write. It's an underwriting. Jesus and the way he went about his suffering from Gethsemane to the cross is that underwriting for you and for me. It's an example that we can trace. And part of that is that he refused to numb his pain. He drank God's appointed cup to the bottom, even when his pain was undeserved. Now, this is convicting for me. Uh, I'm not really into pain. Um, I, uh, I'm a number. You know, how, how, how often and how much effort do I daily give to arranging for my own comfort? 
even when it means shortcutting God's appointed actions for me. When life's pains cause me to wince, cause me to feel a little discomfort, I can choose, I can refuse, and I can choose and you can choose either comfort or Christ-likeness. Now that's for us. What Jesus chose between was to drink a comforting cup or to drink the cup that was appointed for him. You and I are not called to drink that cup. We don't have to drink the cup of God's wrath because Jesus already drank it dry. We are called to suffer for his name, to so identify our lives with Jesus that we will face painful choices at times and will do so for his sake. Now, perhaps you're the spouse who's wearied with the thought of even trying in your marriage anymore. There's nothing immoral going on. It just seems like nothing's going on, or at least not going your way. And you could face the narcotic offer of serving papers. Or you could stay married and just kind of grit your teeth. You could stay married but find something to numb your pain. For him, it could be pornography. For her, it could be getting lost in endless scrolling on social media. But you make sure you stay at enough distance where the pain is minimized a bit. When life's pains cause you to wince, and they cause me to wince, we can choose quick comfort or Christ-likeness in our approach and response. Jesus refused to numb his pain so he could obey God's will. But he not only refused to numb his pain, he also, there's a second refusal, he refused to save his own skin by enduring rather than escaping the cross. He refused to save his own skin, and we'll see this in verses 24 to 32, if you'd look there with me. Pick up verse 24. And they crucified him, and dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide which, man, which each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29, Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. The second refusal we see is that Jesus refused to save his own skin, even when innocent, yet taunted and tortured. At 9 a.m., they crucified him. They nailed his forearm, wrist, or hand, we don't know, to the crossbeam. Then they lifted that crossbeam up on the, onto the upright so that it could be affixed there. And then a large singular nail would have been driven, spiked through his feet on that upright beam. Now, there are other ways they did it. They could have tied him. Crucifixion, it's gruesome. 
It's agonizing. It's humiliating. And on purpose, it is slow. Jesus is flayed back because he had been scourged. We see that in the other Gospels and even here above. You could be scourged to death, or the, 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 good, the good ones, the sol- good soldiers, could scourge you to the point of death, but not kill you. And with r- ribbons of flesh ripped off of his back from that whip, he was pressed against that splintered beam, holding his body weight up by pressing on that spike through his feet. Pain shooting through you. Eventually, you die from exhaustion or asphyxiation. Sometimes it took days. Sometimes the birds and the animals didn't wait for you even to die before they came to have a buffet. The Romans wanted their victims to linger and to die slowly. And we just saw what Jesus didn't take, but now we see what was taken from him. It says that they took his garments, in verse 24, and divided them up. They raffled off Jesus' clothes right in front of him at the foot of the cross. Those who watched it from a distance, we know that there were several women who followed Jesus who were at a distance. They would have been surprised, shocked at that. But here's the first not surprising. Because those who were raffling off and casting lots for his clothes were unwittingly Fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 18. And perhaps even this week, I'd encourage you to read Psalm 22. And you'll see how much of what Jesus went through in his suffering and death was forecasted there, was prophesied there, and he fulfilled. So it's not surprising for those who at the moment could go back to Psalm 22, but probably no one did at the moment other than Jesus. Jesus refused to save his own skin. He he refused to prove himself, just like Satan tempted him. Hey, you know, if you're really the son of God, let's let's put it out there. You know, got to be about the brand. Like, get it out there. Jesus refused to prove himself or retaliate when he was mocked by three groups. The passers-by who mocked him, the priest who taunted him, even more insulting, to not insult him directly, they did it indirectly, and even his fellow cross-bearers. Now, we don't get what you get in other Gospels where Jesus says to one of them, who's like, wait, what are we doing? This man's innocent. And he says, today you'll be, we don't get that in Mark. Because Mark wants us to see Jesus is the Messiah, the suffering servant. He wants to He wants us to viscerally feel within us the suffering. To have a lump in our throat knowing that he was mocked and insulted and did not deserve that. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the very embodiment of Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. That he is the promised suffering servant who was marred in such a way that we couldn't even recognize him, and his appearance was not attractive. We did not, es- we did not esteem him anymore. We just esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. He must have deserved this. Mark wants us to feel that. 
Mark wants us to understand this shouldn't be surprising. Jesus fulfills that. He is the suffering servant who refused to save his own skin. They taunted him. Come down from the cross more than once. Come down from the cross. It's amazing that Jesus didn't come down from the cross. Because every one of us in here, you know, in a very superficial, lighthearted thing. We'll talk every now and then. You'll see people, hey, if you're a superhero and you could have one superpower, what would it be, right? Whatever that is, you're going to take care of whoever's taunting you. Jesus could command angels. He could do whatever he wants. But he refuses to do that, to save his own skin, and he refuses to come off of the cross. Jesus taught his own disciples, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. He taught them, take up your cross, not come down from it. If there's a time you know coming that you're going to be tempted to put down your cross, maybe to save your own skin, to save your job, even though it means smudging some, some character, some integrity, to save face at those who would ridicule you, remember Jesus taught us to take up your cross, not come down from it. When you're tempted to prove yourself or retaliate or self-protect, remember Jesus' refusal to save himself. Why? So that he could save you and me. This is gentleness displayed. Gentleness means power under control or controlled strength. He's not a weakling. It's Im immense, ultimate power to restrain. It's amazing. We sing amazing grace. It's amazing restraint that Jesus showed in not coming down off the cross, not retaliating. Because he didn't, that means he faced the worst horror of all and his biggest pain of all, where we're going to see his third refusal. Look with me in verses 33 to 39. When the sixth hour came, that's noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus' third refusal is that he refused to distrust the father. It doesn't say that explicitly. He didn't come down from the cross, but because he stayed there, then he endured the full cup of God's wrath poured out on him. He endured your sin and mine and all sin being put on him, imputed on him. Second Corinthians, we know that he had no sin, but that he became sin. He, embodied, he took our sin in himself. He became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He died the death you and I should have died. And he knew that was the plan. He knew that was what was at stake. That's what he willingly and joyfully endured. In Philippians 2, it says he was obedient, even 
obedient to death on a cross, giving his life. Even when forsaken in his final three hours, Jesus refused to distance from God, to disown him, and to distrust him. He's still crying out, why have you forsaken me? He refused to curse God and die. He refused to give up on God the Father. First, let's see God's response. Darkness. From noon to three, it was dark. This is a statement of judgment on the nation. We see this uh, in Amos. I think there's a slide there you got. He says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon, make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Next slide. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head, and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. At the, at the end of it will be like a bitter day. This is not surprising. It's a, it surprised everyone, shocked everyone, how Jesus would even cling to his Father, not come down on the cross, not distrust him. But it's not surprising because it fulfills what Amos, what God told us through Amos. God was causing our sin to be laid on Jesus. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And it's by his wounds that you and I are healed. It's not surprising. What he endured was that God the Father forsook the Son. Judicially, he separated from him. At 3 p.m., just at the time the afternoon sacrifice would have been offered in the temple, Jesus cried out in agony, My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt the Father turn away from him, abandoning him, forsaking him. This is death. Spiritual separation from a holy God and physical death only follows spiritual death. Jesus had to die. He had to take our sin on himself and be separated for a time so that you and I could be brought into relationship with God, reconciled with him. And then we see that the curtain, the curtain was torn. This is a passive verb. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. The passive verb and the direction show that this is God's action. And it opened up, saying, access to God is here. There's also an act of judgment upon the nation of Israel, saying, this is how I was communing with you, having fellowship with you. And this is a precursor for AD 70 when Rome will conquer Jerusalem. G they're, they're killing Jesus, their king, now. He will go away, but he will return. And his kingdom will come in its fullness at that point. But the centurion's response, again, when he saw the way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. This man smelled Jesus' blood and vinegar-soaked breath. He was that close. And he saw how he cried out and then gave up his life. So let's just look at the refusals 
one more time. There are three slides, Connor. The way Jesus breathed his last that this centurion saw is that he refused to numb his pain, even when his pain was undeserved. The second one is that he, he refused to save his own skin, even when innocent, yet taunted and tortured. And he did so so that he could save us. And thirdly, Jesus refused to distrust the Father, even in his darkest moment. Surprised. Surprised the centurion. He was in shock. Surprised his followers who scattered on him, but a few kind of tried to get a peek. It surprised those who mocked him that he didn't revile in return. All of that surprise, but it wasn't surprising. And it wasn't just Amos. It wasn't just Isaiah looking forward, but Jesus in his very own words with his disciples. I'm going to give you two of these. This is why it should not be surprising. The next slide. In Mark 8, in the passage where he talks about, who do you say that I am? Which is the key question of life. Who do you say Jesus is? And then he says, okay, well then, you know, now that you've said I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, the various versions in the Gospels, he says, you need to know this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was stating the matter plainly. Okay, but they didn't get it. Fast forward, next slide, Mark 10. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. They're getting closer, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Not surprising. Jesus is not surprised. It had been promised in the Old Testament because it had been planned in eternity past. And Jesus was willing to submit and obey the Father's will to the nth and end degree. Therefore, he could state it plainly. Did he agonize over it? Yes, Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, the agony of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's real agony. It is real torture. It is real death because sin has a real corrosive and lethal effect on all of us. And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, the finished work on the cross, apart from him doing it, we are in a bad place, in a bad way. And so it's not surprising because Jesus himself had said it. And then in Mark's gospel, the key verse is Mark 10, 45. This is what Mark, his entire gospel is arranged around. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ, but he's the suffering servant, the one who had to suffer, the one who had to die so that God could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. But here's Mark's key verse. As they're arguing about greatness, who's going to be the greatest? His disciples. He talks to them about that. Nothing wrong with wanting to be great. It's just a matter of what that looks like, and you actually need to become a servant of all. And he says, for... Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That means the only way to be free is there, there is a payment, an exorbitant payment that has to be paid. He is the ransom. This is also in Isaiah 53, that he gave his life a ransom for many. And not only should they not have been surprised, but God 
would say this isn't surprising because uh, Isaiah 53 10 but it was God's pleasure to crush him how in the world could that be a pleasure because he knew it was the only way that you and I could be brought into relationship with Jesus Christ by his grace and his mercy and by the substitutionary death of Jesus we sang it you died in my place What do his refusals matter? Why do they matter for you and me today? Well, the way Jesus endured the cross enabled him to be the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. Secondly, Jesus didn't save himself. He didn't save his own skin, so he could save us from the penalty and power of sin. He paid your debt and mine in full. The fitting response is awe, gratitude, and to fall on him trusting him and him alone and his work on the cross for you and for me. And then why does it matter? The torn veil. The torn veil shows us that Jesus, we don't have to go through the old way. There never, it never was going to put us in right standing with God because those sacrifices weren't good enough. But the author of the Hebrews says Jesus died once for all and that once for all sacrifice was sufficient. He says in Hebrews 10 that because of that, he's issued in a new and living way. You don't have to clean your life up. You can't. But trusting him, his righteousness becomes yours. And being, being righteous and in Christ, now you have a new and living way. You can speak with God, commune with God at any moment. And know that he loves you. And know that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, what's our response? We're going to respond in two ways. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up. If you would stand. There's an old hymn that Dr. Hannah at Dallas Seminary taught us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's so old and hard to play that churches are chicken to do it nowadays. We're not going to play it. They're not going to lead it. We're going to do a responsive reading through the words because I want you to, I want us to vocalize a response of, what a Savior He is. What a Savior He is. So I'm going to be the leader part. You can go to the next slide. You guys are obviously the all part. After that, I'm going to give us a time to quiet for just a moment. Then they're going to lead us and lead you in responding personally. So let's respond together. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinner to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. Amen. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we will sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
Nothing can separate us from his love. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Just going to have them play for a moment to get us into this song, the singing response. But close your eyes and just respond to him in whatever way, whatever thing he's bringing to your mind. Amazed that he would refuse to numb his own pain, he'd refuse to save his own skin so that he could save you. He refused to distrust his father. Because of that, not only are we redeemed, but we can be reassured. He wants you to be reassured of his love today, his grace, his mercy is available. Just take a moment quietly with him to say thank you or how we're going to respond. And then we're going to respond together as Eric leads us.